Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello there, and welcome to episode number 10 of The Music Plays the Band. I'm your host, Rob Koritz of the Dark Star Orchestra. I'm really glad you're joining me today, and I hope you all are safe and well. Well, we have made it to 10 episodes. Who'd have thunk it? I want to thank you all for being here with me, and I want to thank my partners, the Brothers Lazaroff, for being on this journey and helping me make this happen. And now the light's getting brighter. Uh, It's April 8th right now, so one week from now I will be back on the road. so excited about that and working uh, for the first time since October. And, you know, it, it's going to be different still. It's uh, with drive-ins and pods and such, but I'm so excited to get back out there and play some music and entertain the fans and, and see some of my friends from the road. I'm just, I couldn't be happier that we're getting to go out and do some work again. Uh, my featured guest today is bass virtuoso Reed Mathis. Uh, Reed might not be a household name, but if you've ever heard or seen him play with Billy and the Kids or Mickey and Billy as the Rhythm Devils, the Jacob Fred Jazz Odyssey, Uh, Tea Leaf Green or a host of other groups, you all know that he is just a monster player and he exudes this just amazing positive energy when he's on stage. Also joining me is Joni Batari of the band Brown Eyed Women, uh, which I believe is one of the only, if not the only, all-female Grateful Dead cover band in the land. Uh, Before we get started, I'd like to ask you all to support the podcast by heading over to www.patreon.com forward slash the music plays and purchasing a subscription. We've got tiers for everyone's budgets, and they include some great bonus content to supplement what you're hearing here on the air, Uh, and I'd love love to have you along. Uh, If you'd rather make a one-time contribution, please visit paypal.me forward slash the music plays. You know, I I couldn't do this without your support, and all the love is appreciated, so thank you very much. All right, let's get started. The Black Music Moment is brought to you by The Clean Store, brandingandapparel.com for all your branding and apparel needs technology-driven solutions, and concierge service for managing programs of all sizes. The Black Music Moment is our attempt at chronicling the profound influence of black music and musicians on the dead. Today we honor Elizabeth Cotton. Cotton was born in 1893 to a musical family near Chapel Hill, North Carolina. She left school at age 9 to work, but saved her money and purchased her first guitar at age 12. A 
self-taught left-handed guitarist, Cotton developed her own original style. She played a guitar that was strung for a right-handed player, but she played it upside down, which contributed to her unusual finger-picking style. By her early teens, she was writing her own songs, one of which, Freight Train, which she wrote when she was 11, became one of her most recognized. A version recorded in 1956 by a UK group became a hit, and it's credited as one of the main influences in the rise of skiffle music, which is the music that inspired the genesis of the Beatles. At age 17, she retired from music to raise a family and didn't perform again until she was in her 60s. This came about while she was working as a housekeeper for the folk-singing Seeger family, which included their son Pete Seeger. In the 50s, the Seegers began to record her and released her songs on the Folkways label. She continued to tour and record well into her 80s, and she lived until the age of 94 when she died in 1987. Her song, Oh Babe It Ain't No Lie, debuted in the Dead's repertoire during the Warfield run in 1980, and then it was played ten times over the course of those acoustic shows at the Warfield and Radio City Music Hall. It made a few more one-off appearances and was also performed by Garcia's side projects in numerous acoustic settings. Garcia mentioned getting Folkways albums out of the public library, and that's undoubtedly where he learned of Cotton and so many of the other black artists that the dead would honor over the years. Cotton's version has a few different lyrics, and the order of the verses are switched, but it's still easily recognizable to dead fans. So here is Elizabeth Cotton and her 1958 recording of Oh Babe, It Ain't No Lie. Telling her lies on me Wish to my soul that old woman would die Keep her telling her lies on me Sarno Music Solutions Breakdown with Brad Sarno is brought to you by Sarno Music Solutions, producing the finest musical instrument audio gear, designed and hand-built right here in St. Louis, Missouri since 2003, and Blue Jade Audio Mastering, St. Louis's primary mastering service since 1999. Last week, Brad and I were talking about Owsley Stanley and the Wall of Sound, and I left a little section of it out due to time constraints, and believe it or not, I had quite a few people ask this question this week. Uh, about this particular topic. So we're going to go back and give you the rest of that discussion that Brad and I had about the wall of sound. 
I, I, I'm glad you brought up Healy because uh, next week in our next episode, I'd like to talk about him a little bit more. Um, but there's one more thing I wanted to ask you about the Wall of Sound era, um, if you could explain it for the folks out there. Because they, they can see it in a lot of the videos and the movie and all that. The vocalists, when they would come up, it's like two microphones. Right. One on top of the other. Yeah. What that is, uh, because the wall of sound was behind the microphone, behind the singers, uh, it would have been a, a feedback nightmare with the sound blasting back into the microphone. So those guys were clever and they designed these mics with actually two microphones. And one of the two is out of phase with the other. So what that means is it cancels everything coming from a distance. Um, so it eliminates the feedback and the workaround for the singer is you just sing into one of them. So the singer's voice is not canceled out. And that was their solution to get a pretty good sounding vocal with no feedback. So I guess the top mic would have been the one that was open for them to sing into then. Well, they're both open. They could have sung into either one, but I think, I think just ergonomically the top one is the one that made sense. Gotcha. And we've never seen that anywhere. No one's ever had to do that because they haven't had the PA behind them like that, correct? Right. To my knowledge, no one's ever had that need. How do they come up with the thoughts and figure this stuff out and think about it and come out? Those guys are brilliant. They're from an age of engineers and electronics and radio where they were highly trained, very smart people. And like anything, you're faced with a problem and you find a solution. And the, the evolution of what they do is so based on solutions and necessity so great and so great that we had those people not only in the music that we love but that they were there to kind of lay the groundwork for all for all live music out there absolutely yeah pioneers right on man well we're going to talk about the other pioneer dan healy uh uh next week if you don't mind so i want to thank you for your time today and and we'll get into dan next time Sounds like fun. All right, folks, that's Brad Sarno from Blue Jade Audio. Thank you, my, thank you, my friend. All right, see you around, Rob. Bye-bye. There is a Grateful Dead cover band in every town is brought to you by the Authenticity Academy, offering you online courses and private coaching. If you're feeling stuck or confused about the direction your life is going in, or you've lost touch with your authentic self, the Authenticity Academy is here to help www.authenticity.coach My guest today is Joni Batari, the lead guitarist for Brown-Eyed Women, who, to the best of my knowledge, is the country's only all-female dead cover band. Uh, Really cool stuff they're doing. They play really well, and this was a really enjoyable interview. All right, so I am back today with my Grateful Dead cover band segment, and with me as a guest today is Joni Batari, the lead guitarist for Brown-Eyed Women. How are you today? I'm good. How you doing, Rob? I, I am so good, and I'm so glad you came on and, and chose to spend some time with me. I really appreciate it. Uh, Brown-Eyed Women, an all-female Grateful Dead cover band who is based in all different places, if I understand right. You all don't live in the same place? Correct. We live in six different states. That sounds very familiar to a band that I'm a part of. It does. Um, how did you form if you all live in different states? Well, it was, it wasn't planned at all. Um, Somebody had called in Tales of Golden Road a couple of times and they were like, you know, there's a lot of Grateful Dead tribute bands out there. Where are the female musicians? And I had played with David Gans at a house party in Boca maybe nine years ago. So he would drop my name occasionally 
And um, the last time he dropped somebody else's name, Denise Parant from the Deadbeats in Woodstock. So I went home, my computer, and I'm like, oh, who's this other girl? What does she do? And I saw she played drums and sang and was really good. So we messaged each other and she expressed to me that it would, you know, her dream would be to have an all female Grateful Dead band. And um, I said, you know, that's a tough one. Um, you know, and uh, I said, however, I do know a keyboard player, Caroline Kylo up in Boston. She had, I had played with her once in Florida. You know, people tend to come down to Florida to visit. And uh, I know Dana Carroll in New Jersey who plays with Love Light from just chatting on the message groups. And I know Jill Simmons from The Cause in Pittsburgh, who I've done many gigs with. And I gave her the names and I said, good luck. And about a month goes by and she said, I got in touch with everybody. Everyone's interested. And then later on, someone told me about Kate Moore, who plays body parts from Atlanta. And uh, we went from there. So I it was unexpected. And yeah. so did you all just fly somewhere and meet each other and go ahead and play and see what would happen? Well, we were all in six different states. It was like January, I'm going to say, of 2019. And, you know, we started to have conference calls and we didn't know each other. We had no video, you know, so we've never played. We've never met. How do you book a gig? You know, if somebody wants to see you and let alone not, not playing, we didn't even meet. So um, through my reputation and some connections with some friends down here in Florida, we booked five nights, you know, sight unseen, just on my word. And uh, we all, wow, that's brave. We all met the day before our first gig, had a marathon 11 hour rehearsal. And just to add a little more anxiety, or not anxiety, fun, but it was like the camera crew for the music plays the band was there to document us meeting for the first time. Oh, so, for the documentary. Yeah, the documentary that Andy Logan's doing. So the camera crew was there to capture. Like, hey, I'm Joni. Hey, I'm Kate. Hey, I'm, you know, Jill. So, and they stuck around and, you know, it was like a marathon rehearsal. Beforehand, we discussed, okay, are we doing the 89 version of Cassidy? Are we doing the, right. this version of They Love Each Other? So there was a lot of prep work of what version, what year. So when we got there, we had an idea of, you know, what version. And it all just fell into place? i tell you, Rob, the chemistry was crazy. I mean... The chemistry was just there. Uh, the first show, it, it, I felt like I'd been playing with these girls forever. Well, I'm sure, my God, the energy and the excitement for all of you having an opportunity. I'm going to play this music with a bunch of women for the first time, all of us together. I'm sure the energy was off the charts just walking into the room. It was. It really was. It was so cool. So very cool. You talked a little bit just a second ago um, about we're going to play the 89 version of this. So that kind of tells us we're going to leave this section out or there's that extra bar here. And, and that kind of answers part of my question, but do you take a specific approach to interpreting and performing the music further past? Okay. We're going to do the 89 version. That's really just an arrangement thing. So you're all on the same page as far as arrangements goes, taking it a step past that your approach to interpreting it and performing it. You're playing, I, I would assume you're all influenced by the players, but how do you approach it when it comes to that as a band? That's a great question. Um, we've, 
haven't played together a whole lot. We had done 13 shows and then the pandemic hit. So we haven't gone, we haven't explored as much as we would have liked because 13 shows, pandemic, all separate. So, you know, up until this point, that's a hard question to answer because we're still getting to know each other. Um, Personally, the singers, you know, they make the songs their own. I can tell you that, you know, when she sings a song, you know, she definitely puts her spin on it. And um, when Denise sings it, she puts her spin on it. Um, I think it's very cool that you have a singing drummer. That is so hard. Yes. I could could never do it. It's first of all, my voice is terrible. But even if I had a good voice to sing and drum at the same time, so difficult. So you'd only gotten to play 13 shows. I didn't realize that it was this new, um, but you, they were all over the place. But I mean, somewhere in Georgia, I think I saw some videos of some in Georgia yeah, um, and some in Florida. So how are you? And I would assume, and I see you have one booked and I saw today that it's sold out. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, how are you deciding where and when, you know, we're getting back to normal. How are you deciding where and when to play and how much you'll play? Will you tour? Will you do a weekend in one person's city, a weekend in another person's city? Um, well, you know, we, we talk with our agent and we're trying to hit, uh, different parts of the country, you know? Um, so we have, um, we're, we trying to do like, um, this is just now this, this is all subject to change, like, uh, four to five days every other month, but there's some months that they're in a row because, you know, we're not 25 and live in a van down by the river, we're a little older. So not old, but, uh, you know, some people have careers and whatnot, but everyone's pretty flexible and willing to jump in. Um, and so we have the mid Atlantic coming up in June. We, we sold out Baltimore today and we have Jersey and we decided to hit the stay outside in the summer, do only outside shows smart just because of what's going on in the world. So we have some shows to be, that'll soon be announced for August in the Southeast and we hope to hit the Northeast in the fall and some other things. Being an all female group, were you, were you initially, you know, uh, were you initially met with skepticism by the club owners or the fans or anything like that? What was the take on you all when you come out? You know, um, do you think like the fans look at you all or judge you any differently because as musicians is because it's an all female group. That's really two questions at once. I know I apologize, but. Um, yeah, I do. I do think so. From some of the comments I read on Facebook, like, oh, I came out not expecting a whole lot, knowing that it was a girl band, but, you know, and then they would say something nice. Um, so judging by what I see that people write, absolutely. It's, you know, there's some skepticism there. Did it make, has it been tougher to get gigs because of it, do you think? Or do you have an agent, you said, so that helps yeah, for sure. It, yes, we do. Um, you know, it, it hasn't been tougher for us. I mean, everybody loves, um, everybody loves the idea. Um, I mean, we were supposed to play Skull and Roses this year. So, I mean, that speaks a lot to yeah. credibility of, you know, he really was psyched to have us. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. No, I think the the club owners are like, um, this is different. We like them. Yeah. And and maybe some, you touched on this already, but maybe some of the fans come out at the beginning 
for the novelty of it, but then they hear you. I mean, I, I didn't know what to expect to be completely honest. And I watched a bunch of video the other night. It's really good. So I, I would, I would imagine you get a little bit of that. Like you were saying on the, on the Facebook thing, people who come out for the novelty of it and are like, Holy shit, they can play. They're really, really good. I'm going to go see him again. Right. Can you imagine if we had a few more rehearsals? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Well, I, I can't thank you enough for being with me. I hope one of these days, we would have happened last year, our paths would have crossed. But uh, hopefully one of these days on the road, when things are getting back to normal, our paths will cross. And I want to thank you for sharing your insight with me and wish you nothing but the best of luck moving forward. Thank you, Rob. I appreciate it. I look, I look forward to our paths crossing one day. My pleasure. Yeah, that's Joni Batari from Brown Eyed Women, everybody. Thanks very much. Thanks, Rob. If you like what you're hearing today and would like to support the podcast, I have two different ways for you to do that. You can make a one-time contribution at paypal.me forward slash the music plays or become a patron with a monthly subscription that includes expanded video versions of my segments, uh, outtakes from all the interviews, uh, some really cool community hang time, videos from home and on the road, and a lot more. So uh, if you're interested in that, please become a patron at patreon.com forward slash the music plays. I thank you in advance, and any love and support is much appreciated. Our feature conversation is brought to you by Grateful Sweats. On Shakedown or online, Grateful Sweats is your first stop for subtle dead designs. Check them out at etsy.com slash shop slash Grateful Sweats and see for yourself. Designs that only other heads will get. That shirt with the state of Tennessee and the word Jed in it, someone says nice shirt, you know that they understand what's going on here. A subtle dead cat makes its point and no one does sweats like Grateful Sweats. Hoodies, sweatpants, joggers, tees, and much more. Subtle dead designs at etsy.com slash shop slash Grateful Sweats. Today I have a conversation with Reed Mathis, one of the most accomplished and unique bass players on the scene today. Uh, Reed's firmly entrenched in the San Francisco dead music scene, but as you will hear, he definitely did not come up in the Grateful Dead world. When I first met him way back in the early 2000s, he was playing some way out jazz with the Jacob Fred Jazz Odyssey, and his upbringing was incredibly varying from a musical standpoint. I found it really interesting to talk to someone who was drawn to the dead a little further along in his musical career. Uh, it, It certainly is a different and interesting perspective. Uh, This interview was actually about twice as long as what you were hearing, and it got super deep. Uh, You can hear the full version at my Patreon site, www.patreon.com forward slash the music plays. Okay, hello. I am here today with my friend Reed Mathis, who I believe is in San Francisco. How are you doing, pal? Hey, man. I'm doing great. I'm doing great. You know, all things considered. Um... I, I honestly couldn't ask for a, a, a much better um, situation in context. <laughs> right? How are you doing? I'm I'm hanging in there. You know, it's everybody's healthy, so we're good. Yep, exactly. You you are in Frisco, right? I mean, I'm in the Bay Area. I live in the East Bay, so um, I live in El Cerrito, which is a little bit north of Berkeley. What are you What are you doing with yourself? Keeping busy, trying to keep busy while we can't go out and play. Honestly, I have been. I have. This has been the most productive year of my career. <laughs> I I um I have done a ton of music making in the last year. Um, a lot of it more on the production tip, and um, that stuff hasn't started to come out yet. So, um, but honestly, by the time this airs, probably some of that will be getting released. So, 
I could probably talk about it. Um, but yeah, several massive, massive projects um, have been, have, you know, I've seen them through to completion in the last year and I'm super excited. I, my, my, my rough plan is that, you know, if, if the vaccine stuff goes according to schedule and next fall we're gigging, you know, um, I should have this like fleet of <laughs> fleet of um, art that I'm releasing uh, right on time for all, for all that. So That's awesome. hopefully it'll work. So I thought that, you know, you and I go way back, but I thought this would be a really good interview and very interesting because you kind of came into this whole Grateful Dead scene um, musically speaking, playing wise after playing professionally in so many other genres and disciplines first. And mm -hmm. from what I gather, you know, your musical upbringing was very much not Grateful Dead. So I was wondering if you could take me back to Tulsa and just give me a, give me a, a little synopsis about your roots, you know, in your musical life growing up in Tulsa. Sure. Um, well, there, one part of my musical roots, um, was related to the Grateful Dead a lot, even though not directly, because my father, um, both my parents are great musicians, but when my father was a teenager in the 60s, um, he was a bass player in folk groups. He played upright bass and sang, and um, it was like mostly vocal-oriented folk groups. Um, and so our record collection when I was little was Woody Guthrie and Cisco Houston and Lead Belly and... Um, you know, they, my parents didn't like Dylan, which is, I, I, I can, I can get, I get it, I guess. I don't know. He's my favorite, but, uh, but my parents didn't dig Dylan. So I didn't, I didn't get Dylan till I was like 20, but, um, but I grew up with Woody Guthrie and, and Cisco Houston and that crew. Um, so that kind of laid the groundwork for it a little bit, but my parents are classical musicians and my their fathers are classical musicians that knew each other back in the forties and fifties, wow. which is how my parents met. Um, so, and this was all going down in Tulsa as well. Uh, no, no, Tulsa came much later. Um, I I lived the first decade of my life in the Bay Area, um, in Menlo Park. Oddly enough, um, wow. I did not know anything about the Grateful Dead, but I, I grew up on Lorelei Lane right off of Marsh Road in, in Menlo Park. And um, we had these train tracks behind my house in Menlo Park where my sister and I were forbidden to go play. And of course, we went back there and played all the time. And um, we used to put pennies on the train tracks. So when the train came by, you know, it would turn the penny into an oval. And right. I just thought that was insanity. Um, and years later, fast forward 35 years or something. And um, when I'm starting to hang out with Kreutzmann, and we're kind of doing that get to know you thing where you tell each other your backstory. And, and um, I was talking about Menlo Park and I, I lived off of Marsh Road and I was like, yeah, they, you know, there were these train tracks right behind my house. And Bill looked at me and goes, I put a lot of pennies on those train tracks. And I went, what? Dude, I put a lot of pennies on those train tracks. Turns out we pulled up Google Maps and the house he grew up in in Palo Alto was also had those train tracks behind it, the same tracks. Wow. So we then bugged out about like, man, if we, if either one of us had been born the same time as the other one, we would have gone to elementary school together. We would have like ridden bikes, we, you know, we would have been smashing pennies together completely. Um, 
So, you know, so yeah, Menlo Park, the only, the only slightly Grateful Dead thing I remember from my childhood in Menlo Park is that my mom gave me a very stern talking to when I was probably five or six, you know, when I was old enough to sort of take off on my bicycle and just go exploring without supervision. Um, and my, one of the warnings my mom gave me was if a man offers you stamps, don't lick the stamps. And I remember being like, what the fuck are you talking about? What? Don't lick the stamps. And this for like forever, I was just like, that is the weirdest admonition I've ever heard. And then years and years later, when um, it might've been my first acid trip, one of my first acid trips in Tulsa, we had paper acid, you know, and, um, and so I, I, I put this piece of paper on my tongue and then I sudden, I was like, it's kind of like a little stamp. And then suddenly my brain connected and I was like, oh shit. Menlo Park, Ken Kesey, uh, like the whole thing that the one flew over the cuckoo's nest hospital is the Menlo Park Veterans Hospital, like, um, you know, where, where, where Kesey volunteered for the acid experiments in the late 50s. I mean, um, the whole the whole um, acid culture really started in Menlo Park. <laughs> and so then I was like, oh, no wonder my mom told me not to lick stamps. She was like a little boy licked a stamp and he thought he could fly and he jumped out a window, <laughs> which terrified me as a first grader. Right. Um, so anyway, yeah, I lived in Menlo park and, and uh, my dad conducted choirs at the Menlo park Presbyterian church and was one of the associate conductors for San Francisco opera. And uh, we came into San Francisco, you know, on the weekends, usually um, I saw a lot of, concerts that I didn't appreciate at the time. And in hindsight, I'm like, Oh my God, I saw that, you know? Yeah. We had, uh, we had an awesome grand piano in the living room and my dad's cello and my dad's banjo and my dad's mandolin, um, and my dad's ukulele. And I was allowed to play the ukulele and the mandolin when I was little, I was not allowed to touch the cello, or the, um, or the banjo. Um, and I could touch the piano, but they usually asked me to stop when I would, cause I was loud, but, um, the other ones I could take in my room and then they wouldn't hear it. So yeah, my relationship with music really started in my room with the door closed. And then we moved to Tulsa when I was nine and that was super depressing. <laughs> um, super depressing. I did not, I was not on board. And, um, but in hindsight, it's the best thing that could have happened because in Tulsa, the best public schools were the magnet schools, meaning that they were, Tulsa's really segregated, uh, racially still to this day. Um, and so the good schools that got all the government money that, that attracted the best teachers were all on the black side of town. So the best arts programs were in the black schools and they bust white kids to that part of town. So my parents sent me to these schools and then where all the music teachers were black. So thrown into this um, environment that was very different than the musical environment my parents were in, basically. Uh, were you, well, I want to go jump a little forward and then we'll maybe go back again. But sure. when, when you and I first met, we met in 2000. Yep. And I don't know if you'll remember the day it, at the Mystic Hot Springs in Monroe, Utah. That's right. You guys rolled through. Oh my God. That's fucking right. 
we were either we were either playing there after you or playing there before you or it might have been just rolling through because we'd already been there and we were going to play outside and you guys were indoors in that little room yeah and we walked in there <laughs> and it absolutely i remember scott Larned, our former keyboard player who we missed oh, so scott. much love. i remember i love scott He's walking up to me on that. We're on opposite sides of the room and him walking up to me and just going, dude, this is totally whack. <laughs> and it was some of the most whacked out yet, yet incredibly accessible improvisation I had ever heard. We were just, I mean, this is when Brian's brother was still the drummer, I believe. This is even oh, before right. Jason. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, just jaws on the floor going, what the fuck is this? trying to comprehend what you guys are doing. And that's, that's, that's 21 years ago. And, and, and everything you guys were doing was a hundred percent. Well, in my mind, anyway, a hundred percent improvised and so different than your traditional group. You know, Brian's keeping the bass with his left hand and you're playing bass, but you're up top and playing melody essentially. And different, you know, different effects at that point. How old are you? When when, when, I was probably 23. So, and, and you joined JFO, JFJO before that, obviously. How old yeah, JFJO started in 94. Um, I was a junior in high school. Um, so that was my first first band that played in front of people. Like before that, when I was in things that were called a band, it would just be like me and one other dude and we only played at our house. <laughs> right. You know, or like or like our big gig would be at somebody else's garage, <laughs> you know? Um so when I, so real, I just played music alone, you know, um, until, until I was 17. And then, um, and then I got a phone call from Brian out of the blue. Um, Brian called me up at like midnight, um, and was like, yo, uh, you know, my name's Brian and, um, I hear you, um, play bass and are you like jazz and whatever. And he was like, do you want to, um, would you ever be down to jam? And I was like, yeah, I fucking love to jam dude. And he was like, cool. What's your address? And I told him and he was like, I'll be there in 15 minutes. And I was like, dude, it's midnight. And he was like, I'll, he was like, well, can you swing it? And I was like, all right, sure. Let's do it. So I had to sneak out. Um, and he took me, where did we go? We went somewhere that had a piano and played for hours, just the two of us. And was just sort of like, yeah, finally, Finally, another person that's serious, you know, is what it felt like. Um, and you're a junior in high school when that happened? I was a junior, yep. Are um, you or Brian, either of you, are either of you at all aware of the Grateful Dead at this point in your life? Zero. Zero. Absolutely zero. Do you remember when you uh, first yes. heard Yes. Our founding, our, the the drummer of Jacob Fred, the original drummer, Sean Layton, um, was... He his mentor was a man named Gordy Ryan, and Gordy Ryan's mentor was Babatunde Olatunji. Um, nice. So Gordy Ryan was in the Drums of Passion ensemble with Mickey Hart, and so I remember him pulling out Mickey's book um, and kind of walking me through it a little bit, and um, and I was like, dang! And he and he kind of talked about the Grateful Dead, and then. Um, Sean's older brother, Dylan, was in Oklahoma's premiere and maybe only Grateful Dead cover band, uh, which was called Whirly Gig. Um, and so starting around 95, 
I started sitting in with Whirligig and um, they only played dead music. So for me to sit in, I had to learn dead tunes, which they just taught me like sitting there. They, I, I didn't listen to the dead. I would, they would just say, this one's called eyes of the world. And it goes like this and they would teach it to me. And then I would sit in and we would jam. You never listened to the dead's versions of them at that point. Not at that point. No, I, I, um, I mean, wow. at that point I was 18 and I was learning, I mean, learning so much music every day. I was like, you know, I was skipping school. I barely went to my senior year of high school. I got D's and F's and just didn't even go. Cause I was too busy playing music all day and all night and whatever chasing girls. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I learning a song was just sort of a normal part of my day. I was learning 10 songs a day, you know? So I would just be like, yeah, how's it go? Show it to me. You know, I, I liked, I liked not, there was something about um, only getting a, only getting, what am I trying to say? There's something about not getting the full picture that really appealed to me as an improviser. Because I, I, as, as this, as the child of classical musicians, you know, I saw, I saw two very different approaches to music and I very strongly rejected the classical method, which was there's a correct way and this is it. And so I, no matter what music I was learning, I always made a point to avoid the correct way. Um, I just felt like it was the kiss of death. So yeah, when they were like, this is friend of the devil, this is uncle John's band, whatever. I would just learn it right then off, off of their example as if they were original tunes of theirs, you know? Um, right. And then, cause to me it was the improvising was the th- the main thing. And the, you know, at that age, at least, you know, young, young people are trying to define themselves and they often do it by saying what they aren't. I'm not that I'm not that I'm not that. So I was very much in that mode of being like um, a little big for my britches and a little bit, I don't know, just sort of like, like I don't want to learn the right way because that will mean I'm one of those people and I don't want to be one of those people. I want to be one of the innovative people. (laughs) I would assume eventually you started listening to it. and It took a long time. I remember this one night we were playing a show in at the University of Oklahoma in Norman. And, you know, we I was a big cannabis smoker by then. Um, I mean, acid was my first drug. Uh, but by then I was super into cannabis. And so anytime anybody was like, hey, you guys want to smoke? It was like, fuck yeah. So somebody was like, uh, we live around the corner. You should come over and we have a nice bong and stuff. So went over there and they put, they. I was like, what is this fucking music? Like, and they were like, oh, this is the dead, man. This is like, whatever. And honestly, I hated it at that that night and now i realized that they were playing me probably not a great recording you know like uh just like definitely was not 1973 you know what i'm saying uh and um it was just like lots of weird synths i just remember it being really synth synthy um real midi sounding like all the instruments sounded kind of midi-ish to me and i was just like no nope and then uh you know, it really wasn't until 2005, uh, Steve Kimmock hired me. Um, so by that time I was 28 and Kimmock hired me and his driver, 
the driver of the RV on that tour was Charlie Miller. Yes, Charlie. And, and you're you're um, going to immediately hear the best sounding stuff you'll ever hear. If you're 100%. And I was just like, bro, I'm ready. I'm ready. So lay it on me. It was a six-month tour. And I just started sitting up front and being like, what's on the what's on the menu today, bro? And he would be like, this is uh, UCLA, November 1973. And um, you know what I'm saying? And this I was is, like, there's no better way to learn about the Grateful Dude, Dead. It was epic. I remember the first day I was like, I was like, all right, bro, we got a 12 hour drive ahead of us. Um, give me your number one. Give me your number one show. Let's listen to that. And he was like, fuck, that's hard. And he was like, he was like, I definitely can't give you my number one show. That's impossible. I was like, okay, give me the, give me the one you think I will like the best. Like we knew each other. Okay. By then I was like, okay, give me the one you think is right for me. And he was like, boom, I can do that. He put on the Watkins Glen soundcheck. And we listened to that. And I was like, I will be fucking damned if that is not the best music I've ever heard in my life. Once Charlie kind of took me by the hand and walked me through all that. And then I asked Baracko what his favorite show was. And he told me September 72 in um, Jersey. Yeah. Uh, like, Capital Theater Passaic. Yep, yep. Yep. Where they open with Morning Dew. And then yep. they do basically like three sets of every, like the greatest shit ever. Um, yep. So I basically started going around to all these musicians I admired and being like, what's your favorite show? And then I would listen to it 20 times, you know? <laughs> Um, and I got to a point where I was really, I was like, this is, you could make a case for this being the best music ever made. What grabbed you? What, 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 what was the turning point when you started listening? Did you know? Do you remember? Yes. Um, the turning point was that they happened. It was all, it was the timing. It was the, it was the 1965 fucking timing when the, what the culture was doing at large at that moment. Not only the 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 you know Dylan plugging in and the um, the synthesis of R and B and you know early rock and folk music and bluegrass music and Miles Davis and um, Ornette Coleman and it was just sort of like this insane melting pot and with this sense of the audacity to be yourself you know it was like. Uh, I remember Kimmock saying when I was talking to him about it back, back, back in 05, um, he was like, he didn't like talking about the dead very much. Um, he would usually change the subject, but one time he did talk to me for a while and, um, he, he was like, yeah, not, not a single one of those guys with the possible exception of Garcia are what you would call a good example of how to use their instrument. Like they're all freaks. They all have a freakish approach to their instrument. None of them are doing the correct way. And I was like, thank you. Like, he put it so succinctly. I was like, that's what I like about them. None of them give a rat's ass what anybody thinks about their playing <laughs> or their style or their feelings or the length of the song or the style of improvising or the set list. Or like, it was just like, I'd never seen a group of people outside of black jazz musicians be that fucking audacious. And sure of themselves like that paradox where you're so confident that you can allow yourself to be uncertain it takes a lot of confidence to be uncertain because humans don't like being uncertain playing free music you know what you what some people would call free jazz but that's it's 
after after the Grateful Dead, I don't think you can you, the word jazz belongs on that. It's just free music, you know. Right. Um, improvised stuff like Dark Star, you know. The attitude that it takes to play that. Um, I mean, the attitude that it takes for you or me to play Dark Star for thirty minutes. That's a lot of bravery. Imagine what it was like to be the first person to do it. You know, and their fans to be like. To stand, I mean, I know what it's like to be on stage and be improvising and, and get that feeling. We're losing them. We're losing the audience. You know, we've gone too far. We better do something. We better drop a funk beat to get them back. And you listen to these recordings of of them playing uh, in the early seventies, and you're just like, Jesus Christ, the the cojones on these guys to just like. I, I would almost get nervous listening to some of these recordings. Like, oh my God, they're totally losing the audience, but they're not. For some reason, they're not. And that's what fascinated me. Like, how do I, that's what I want to learn. I want to learn the kind of teams, teamsmanship, the kind of self-acceptance that it takes to play in that way. And, but the other, the other thing is that I'm sorry, I'm talking so much. I'm drinking coffee. No, it's great. I'm, I'm loving it. This is no, perfect. I'm loving the this. other thing that was so cool about them was that they weren't like Ornette Coleman. They weren't like Miles Davis. They weren't, they, they were comfortable in that realm, but they, then the next song would be Big River. Like right. they weren't one dimensional and they, or in the middle, in, they would do a thing. I'm sure you've heard it. Dark star for 25 minutes uh-huh. into El Paso. Exactly. Back into and Dark Star or and, into the other one. And that's where it's at. Like that is what is, that's what makes them, I mean, you can make a case for that being some of the most incredible art ever made for that reason. Not only that reason, but the reason that it connected. Anybody can make great art and play it to five people. The fact that they were able to make great art and fill stadiums. Let's talk about Phil for a minute. Um, and you're a bass player. Let's talk about the bass. Uh, you know, when I look at Phil, and I'm a drummer, so I look at it through a drummer's eyes, but Phil's playing is very fluid, but he's somewhat he's somewhat stoic and reserved a little bit in his delivery. Mm-hmm. And when I watch you play, you're just throwing all kinds of crazy, loose, positive energy all over the stage. Always have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Does his playing style integrate into that? Would, would you say his playing style after listening to all this stuff that Charlie turned you on to had any influence on the way you play the bass? Oh yeah. Extremely, extremely. Um, not in a, what I take from other musicians is, is, is more their approach than their delivery. Um, you know, I, I kind of feel like I have my own delivery and, um, and I definitely have, strong feelings um, in my body that are demanding to come out uh, through the instrument. And that's not really something I have a lot of choice about. Um, I've never been one of these people that I've never been like, I don't know what to write or I don't know what to play. Like I, I, there's always been um, music kind of banging on the door to get out of me. Um, So when I, when I'm influenced by somebody, I rarely sound like them. But what I what 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 I took from Phil, I mean, a lot of what I took from Phil, honestly, was affirmation for who I already was. I'm a bass player that I, I every instrument should be able to play every position. Like, I think of music. I think of I think of instruments in a band in terms of like gas, liquid, solid. You know, the three states of matter on this planet. 
a band has all three. You're going to have something salt, something that acts like the floor where you, it doesn't ever go away. It doesn't surprise you. You can basically ignore it. Um, so, and then you have a, a liquid, which would be sort of like rhythm guitars and keyboards and stuff. And then you have foreground, which would be the singer or the soloist. And that would be the gaseous element, the thing that is completely unpredictable, constantly surprising, constantly expressive, never, um, never ignorable. So to me, those three roles, every instrument should be able to be all three roles. I love it. Does that make sense? Like it, to me, it makes complete sense. And, and so a good, a good band will, yeah. I mean, a, a good band, you basically take turns. In rock and roll, people actually act like instruments are a type of person. You know what I'm saying? Like guitarists are this way. Drummers are like this. Singers are like this. Like there's so many cartoons where it's like, oh, the singer's this way and the bass player's this way. And um, and we act like these instruments are personalities with behaviors. And, and the uh, dead was the complete opposite of that. Exactly. Lee, exactly. Those motherfuckers figured out how to have all of those roles be sort of blurry. Like, who's got the best rhythm in The Grateful Dead? Not the best rhythm, but the most reliable rhythm in The Grateful Dead. Arguably, Garcia. You know what I mean? I feel like when people are dancing, they're dancing to the guitar. They're dancing, mm -hmm. especially when he's soloing, he plays so much in time. And he's, he, he hits the ones and the threes so hard. And he, he, he swings, you know what I'm saying? Like, like the, the time is mostly coming from Jerry, I feel like. And the, and Bill and Mickey are elaborating on it. And Phil's dancing around it. And Phil's dancing around it. And the roles are all upended. And, and guess what? It's still fine. The music doesn't suffer. Like it's to me when I finally connected with the dead and I heard that reality in there of which Lesh is the ultimate example. He's the least traditional of any of them. And that's saying something because none of those cats are traditional use of their instrument. Um, and I just heard that. And I, I suddenly realized, Oh my God, these are my brothers. Like these guys are like me. Like we're, these are also misfits. Misfits. And then, and then down the road for you, you end up, you say, these are my brothers. They understand. I, I get what they're doing. Cause it's kind of what I'm at. And then down the road, you end up playing with them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How does, would, would the first thing be seven walkers? Is that right? Yep. Seven walkers How, was the first thing. How's that come about? Um, that came about through Paige McConnell, oddly enough. Um, uh, every time Jacob Fred played in, Burlington, um, Paige would come and hang out. I and saw you in Burlington just by yeah. chance. We just by chance, we were there on a night off, and we at watched the, the metronome. No, this was at like the Flynn or the somewhere I can't remember where, but it ended up being it was Jason's last show. Oh shit! No, that was at the um, town hall. The town the, hall. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god, that was a very emotional night. Yeah, we just happened to be in town and got to be there. Um, well, Paige. Paige, um, <laughs> Paige was a fan of the of the band, and um, and then after Katrina, there was a some sort of um, uh, somebody in Colorado was putting together some benefit shows to raise money 
to replace the public school instruments that had been damaged in the hurricane. Um, so they were, we were going to do a, 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 a Boulder show and a Denver show and they got Paige and Paige, uh, got Russell Batiste and me and, um, and Papa Molly. And that was the band. And, um, we rehearsed for a day and then we did these two shows and, um, and it was super fun. And then maybe like, I guess it was like three years later that Papa Molly called me up and was like, Hey, um, can you do some gigs next month? And I was like, sure. And he did. That's all he said. Can you do gigs? And I was like, yeah. Um, and when <laughs> I showed up and it was Bill, I was just like, Oh, well, hi. <laughs> uh, I had no idea what you were getting into. Seriously. He had no idea what you were going out to play. I did not. And it wasn't called seven walkers. It was like, you know, Papa Molly's swamp something, um, you know, and uh, so we just, we did this Colorado run um, and Bill and I just like, I was just like, man, you are, he was like my favorite person I had ever met. I was just like, this guy is so kind and so funny and so um, like genuinely interested in me. Like I really felt seen by him. He was loving me. And I, um, I was just really, really moved by it. And this is aside from his drumming. I'm just talking about him as a man. Right. Um, but I'm sure that translates all of a sudden. Now I feel at peace and I feel comfortable and we yep. can go on stage and do whatever the hell we want. And it's going to rock. And my, and my style and his style surprisingly fucking matched like a motherfucker. It was like, like my style, my bass playing has a little more rhythm than most drummers would like. But he loved it. And my bass playing has a little more movement than most drummers would like, but he fucking loved it. Well, that and, gives him more freedom as well at the same time. You know, if you have a little right. more rhythm than most bass players, that gives him room to move around a little bit more rhythmically. Exactly. He's like, oh, shit. Well, if you're going to hit the two, then I can hit the and a two, you know? And it'd be like, shit, yeah. Like we started cooperating. The last day of that run, Bill was like, so would you guys be down to do this again? And we were like, hell yeah. And then he was like, so um, I have, would you guys be down to write some music? And me and Papa Molly were like, dude, please. And so Bill was like, well, Robert Hunter has sent me a ton of lyrics. And I just have all these lyrics in my email and I don't know what to fucking do with them. I can't write music, you know? And we were like, are you serious? Like Robert Hunter, Robert Hunter, you know? And he was like, yeah, yeah. I've just got, I've got, I've got probably close to 20 tunes uh, just in my email waiting. Um, and so he forwarded me and Papa Molly the lyrics and it was like, I guess we're doing this, you know, I guess we're doing this. And we got a, uh, we went to a studio outside of Austin um, for a week and wrote the seven walkers album. So you have this stable, this pack of Hunter lyrics, and now you're going to write music to them knowing that it's Hunter and where, where his, most of his creative outlet went. When you're writing that music, are you, in any way, shape, or form, consciously or subconsciously, having inf getting influenced at all by the dead because you know that these are tunes written by the guy who writes the tunes and you're playing them 
with Billy, a member of the dead. So is the dead's music coming into your mind at this point? Yes, a hundred percent. I, all I was doing was racking my brain to think of grateful dead sounding chord progressions or riffs. And whenever I would spit one of those out, Bill would go, nah, it sounds like the dead. And I was like, I love you. (laughs) Um, So basically like anything we did that sounded daddy, he would say, that's been done, man. We've done that. We did that. We did that 30 years ago. What are you doing? You know? Uh, So Bill kept it real honest, which, you know, thank God. I want to jump now because Billy and the kids leads to the rhythm devils, right? No, other way around. Rhythm Devils was first. Rhythm Devils was first um, uh, because of Kimok. They okay. Kimok was in the Rhythm Devils, and I think Porter was playing right. bass, and then cool. Porter couldn't make some gigs. And funnily, and and then I I left the Seven Walkers um, after about a year and a half. Um. Then Mickey hired me to be in Mickey Hart Band, um, which was pretty intense because uh, we were on in-ears and playing to a click the whole time. I want to go back to when you were playing with him and Billy at the same time. Mm-hmm. And my question is, and I, I, I know that's two drummers, and I know for a little while in Tea Leaf you had two drummers as well. When you're playing with two drummers – or a drummer and a percussionist, as it sometimes is with Mickey. Mm-hmm. Do you, as a bass player, or as your as, as you, the way you play bass, do you have to change your approach at all when you have two drummers on stage with you? Uh, it depends on the it depends on the people. Um, you know, I to me, it's less about what instruments are on stage and more about what energies are on stage. Um, you know, you could have 20 drummers on stage if they're cooperating. Right. That's a great answer. <laughs> um, great answer. You know, and uh, if you have one drummer that isn't cooperating, it's impossible. So um, so to me, it's really no different. I mean, the original Jacob Fred lineup was eight people and included a percussionist and a drummer. Um, so we always had two drummers up there until 2000. I forgot that you had the two drummers back then. So you, you learned that situation early on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, playing with Bill and Mick, it was really interesting because I got to know Bill's playing pretty well before ever playing with the two of them. So I was really, really comfortable rhythmically with Bill before getting with the two of them. And the first thing I noticed when I was with the two of them was how much Bill loves Mickey as a brother. Um, just like, uh, Bill started putting like, I don't know. It's, it's hard to explain. He would just, he just smiled at Mickey a lot, you know? And just like, I was just like, these guys fucking, these are brothers, man. These guys love each other. Like, I mean, that's another thing that the Grateful Dead really taught me, especially those early seventies recordings where it's just like the level of cooperation implies a type of acceptance of one another. I mean, self-acceptance, obviously, you have to have an extreme amount of self-acceptance to play improvised music at all, especially extremely improvised music where no one's vamping. Right. But, um, but the kind of playing that the dead does, they're not only having to have an extreme level of self-acceptance, they're having to have an extreme level of acceptance of one another. I mean, any other band would have had a huge issue 
with what the other guys were playing. Dude, that that keep the groove solid or dude, the bass keep the bass line going or dude, the rhythm guitar is fucking you're all up stepping on my toes or like dude, your solo t- takes forever or like god damn it, like you're out of tune or your left hand is too busy. Get it out of my way. Yeah, like there's just so much beef. Any other band would have been constantly at each other's throats. Don't play like that. Don't play like that. Don't play like that. And those guys encouraged each other and developed. They went further into their uniqueness rather than rather than beating the the uniqueness out of each other. They encouraged it and and it made it work and made it fucking work. And then. Not only did they like it, hundreds of thousands of people danced and 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 lived their lives by these songs and and comforted themselves when they're grieving and put it on when they wanted to party and used this music for for their whole lives for you know like this this music became almost like ritualistic um like a way to move yourself through the sorrows and joys of existing and being a fucking human. The, the the beating heart of the Grateful Dead, the thing that everybody feels and is drawn to that you just can't fake or imitate. I love your perspective on all of this, man. It's, it's beautiful. It really is. And especially, you know, for someone like we talked about earlier who, who came into learning about the Grateful Dead later. You know, basically, you're starting to learn about it when they're done, when the dead is finished, you know, in 95. Completely. Completely. Um, and, and I love that someone who didn't necessarily get to see the dead gets it this way and understands it this way and relates to it this way. And I want, I want to thank you for, uh, for sharing that with us. But before I let you go, I've been doing this with everybody. Mm-hmm. It hasn't always gone so fast, even though I'm calling it a lightning round. It <laughs> um, doesn't always go fast. Try not to think, just try to answer. You good? Yes. Um, first of all, did you see the, the actual Grateful Dead? Did you get to see them? I did not. Okay. Do you have a favorite? Okay. We'll start here then. <laughs> Favorite show? I mean, I, I have I, I have five favorite shows. Give me two of them. I really like the the um, Tampa seventy three that was Dick's Picks Volume One. Yep. Um, it's got the the best weather report suite I've ever heard. Um, I really like the Winterland seventy four. The um, you know farewell. The, the farewell. I just not only the playing but the recording is outstanding. Um, and I, this doesn't count as a show, but Europe 72 as a live album is. Okay. Well, that, that's the next one. There. The next one is, well, first of all, you just answered two of them. Cause the next <laughs> question, <laughs> the next question is studio recordings or live, and it's going to be live. Okay. And the next one is favorite dead album. And we're going to go with Europe 72. Are we? No. All, blues for Allah. Blues for Allah. hundred percent. hundred percent. No question. Favorite non-Grateful Dead album, any genre, what comes to mind? Oh, I have no idea. I have, I have no idea. I mean, um, name a year and I'll tell you my favorite album from that year. I'll go with the year I was born, 1968. 1968. My favorite album from 1968 would be Nefertiti by Miles Davis. There you go. Thank oh, wait, you. no. Electric Ladyland. Sorry. Electric <laughs> Ladyland. Favorite color? Ooh. Blue? Uh, first job playing bass at the spaghetti warehouse in Tulsa (laughs) favorite venue to play oh shit favorite venue to play 
I mean, if it was if it was what room have I played that I think is a most gorgeous room, it would be like Capitol Theater or Carnegie Hall. Um, are both incredibly gorgeous rooms, but every time I've been in those rooms, I've been terrified. So, <laughs> um, but the room I've had the most good experiences in would be Terrapin, hands down. Nice. I I I have played Terrapin Crossroads probably a hundred and fifty times. Best city for a day off. Ooh, I like that one. I like that one. Um. New Orleans. That's my answer too. First, <laughs> first, but it can only be one day off because if it turns into two or three, it can just get messy and ugly. 100%. I've had that happen three times. <laughs> first car. Oh, first car. What was my first car? It was Jesus. I don't even remember. I remember what it smelled like. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, We'll move on to your current car. Uh, current car is a, a 2006 Prius. Book you are reading. Ooh, um, I am currently reading um, Dizzy Gillespie's autobiography. Nice. Um, I got to play with Dizzy one time. That's a whole other story. No, not. What? What? He, uh, yeah, he told, he, told, he told me I didn't know how to play the drums. <laughs> I could not thank you enough, my friend. This has been really, really amazing just Rob. to hear your perspective. And I, I love how, I love how it's, it's, it's attitude and spirit more than notes and, and, and roles. I just, I think it's beautiful. Well, thank you, man. I, I hope so. I, I, I've always looked up to you and, and Eaton and um, the crew and I, you guys actually were one of my gateways to the Grateful Dead. I mean, I, I was watching y'all when I, I, those could have been originals as far as I knew, you know, <laughs> do, you remember, do you remember sitting in with us playing dark star? Do I? Yeah. At Marvin's mountaintop. Yep. So we came out of uh, space into dark star. Hell yeah. What I, the, the night that I will never forget was at the gypsy tea room in Dallas. You guys <sighs> just, you guys just, just brought it so beautifully. I was spellbound. Oh, thank you, man. Thank yeah. you. Well, hey man, keep keep playing, keep working on it. I'm excited for your uh, your projects to come out when when this episode's coming out. We're going to let people know all about your new projects if you're yeah. ready. And uh, stay safe and and, oh, and keep doing what you're doing, brother. I I will. I love you so much, and I I can't wait to all be together again, dancing, grooving, doing it. Right on, man. That's Reed Mathis, everybody. Thank you, pal. So much fun. Reed is is quite the bass player and quite the thinking man as well. Well, that brings us to the end of our 10th episode, and I'd like to thank Reed Mathis and Joni Batari for spending some time with me today. I'd also like to thank my sponsors, Sarno Music Solutions and Blue Jade Audio, The Clean Store, The Authenticity Academy, and Grateful Sweats. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support the cause, please consider a subscription at patreon.com forward slash the music plays that offers weekly bonus content, or you can make a one-time contribution at paypal.me forward slash the music plays. Any love is much appreciated as we try and keep this show rolling along for another 10 episodes. The Music Plays the Band is produced by myself and the production and songwriting team Brothers Lazaroff here in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find out more about them at brotherslazaroff.com. The opening and segue music you are hearing are remixes of portions of DSO drum segments that are produced by my drumming partner, Dino English. 
I'll be back again in two weeks on April 22nd with episode 11 with a very special guest, the legendary Yorma Kaukinen. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and please stay vigilant. We're starting to see that light at the end of the tunnel, and we're going to be able to hit the road in some capacity, but it's going to take everyone's efforts for us to get it back to normal as quickly as possible. Thank you all for being here. We'll see you next time.
What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.